You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn this afternoon to the book of Exodus chapter 13. And we'll read the first 16 verses of Exodus chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether male or animal. And Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you. Nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. And this is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. I preach to you this afternoon from the Word of our God as you find it in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 2. The text is rather long, but it starts at 22 and ends at verse 38. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him, meaning Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. 
He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever been to our nation's capital? And if you have, then it will perhaps not be too difficult for you to answer this question. What is the most important and prominent building in Ottawa? Anyone who has been there knows that it is not the Supreme Court of Canada building. It is not Rideau Hall, the home of the Governor General, nor is it 24 Sussex Drive, the home of the Prime Minister. And neither is it the Museum of Civilization or the New War Museum. No, the most important building in Ottawa is the Parliament building. The Parliament building with its three parts, the center block, the east block, as well as the west block. The Parliament buildings are the most prominent and important in Ottawa. They are the most prominent because, you might say, of their size, and they are the most important because of what takes place there. There Canadian laws are made, and from there Canada and Canadians are being governed every day. Now take your mind elsewhere, beloved. Think of Jerusalem, Jerusalem in that time long ago when the Old Testament opens. And now I ask you, what is the most prominent building in that ancient city? Actually, the answer is rather easy. It's the temple. The temple dominated over the ancient city of Jerusalem. And ask another question, what is the most important building in that city? And that too is easy, for the answer is the same, and that is the temple as well. 
That's where Israel's religious life finds its heart and its center. Nothing in all of the city, even in all of the land of Israel, compares or compared to the temple in Jerusalem. And as a result, it's no surprise to us at all when we see that our Lord also has much to do with the temple. You can read about that in all of the Gospels and throughout his earthly ministry, how often he was busy in the temple. Yes, and it starts already very early. Already before his his birth, even, he has something to do with the temple, for is the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, his forerunner, to Zechariah, the priest not made by the angel Gabriel in the temple? But there's more. For soon after our Savior is born, he's brought to the temple. He's brought there as a newborn babe. And then we ask ourselves, why? Why is he brought there? What is he doing there? What is being done to him there? Oh, beloved, let's turn our attention on this last Lord's Day of 2007 to our Savior as he's introduced for the first time to the temple. I preached to you on the theme, the Lord of the temple comes to the temple of the Lord. And there we see him, first of all, dedicated by Joseph and Mary, recognized by Simeon, promoted by Anna. Well, beloved, what exactly all happens to the Lord Jesus after his birth and in what precise order is is something that's rather hard to pinpoint. There are some things that we know, but you know there are a lot of things that we just do not know. For example, we know that he was circumcised on the eighth day, but we do not know where that happened. We know that he was born in Bethlehem, but we do not know how long he and his family stayed there. And we know that the wise men came from the east and that soon afterwards Joseph, Mary, and the babe fled to Egypt. But again, we do not know precisely when it happened, where they left from, or even how long they stayed. In short, there are a lot of unknowns in the gospel about these early weeks and months and years of the Lord Jesus. One thing, however, is not an unknown, and it is the fact that Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem and specifically to the temple. Another fact that is not unknown is that this happened soon after he was born. Our text says, when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. You notice mention is made here of the law of Moses, and it's this law that stipulates that a woman cannot go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. So how many days are that? Well, the law says that a woman who gives birth to a son is ceremonially unclean for seven days. 
And this in turn is followed by 33 days for purification. So 7 plus 33 brings us to 40. 40 days. And so 40 days after his birth, the baby Jesus is presented to the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem. And now why is he presented there? Well, that too has to do, beloved, with the law of God. We've read together from Exodus 13, and there it speaks about the firstborn son. And furthermore, it states that every firstborn son and every firstborn male of their livestock belongs to the Lord. In other words, the firstborn male offspring of every womb in Israel, be it animal or human, is God's special possession and God's special property, you can say. It's his. It's his by right. It belongs to him in a unique way. But why? Well, because every firstborn male offspring born in Israel is to be a perpetual sign and symbol of the fact that the Lord has brought this people out of Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You could say that every firstborn son that is born, every firstborn male animal that is born in Israel acts and reverberates like a shout. And the shout is exodus, deliverance, liberation, salvation. Every firstborn serves to keep the history of God's mighty deeds for his people alive, and especially the deed of taking them out of the house of bondage and out of the land of slavery. The people are not allowed to forget their past, their history, our God's mighty deeds. Yes, and at the same time, beloved, we also have to say that all of this is a reminder to the Israelites that not simply the firstborn, but they all belong to the Lord. The principle of the firstborn points to this. God, in putting every firstborn male offspring in Egypt to death, puts a sentence of death on all the land of Egypt. But God, by claiming every firstborn male in Israel, puts a claim of life on all this people. And so every firstborn male in the land, both of man and of animal, are a special sign to the people of Israel that they all belong to God. The firstborn may belong to him especially. But still, there is a sense in which they all belong. But then, beloved, you might ask yourself, well, if the firstborn are so unique, why are they not set apart by God and assigned to special service in the midst of the people? 
Ordinarily, that would, of course, be true. However, the Lord had, in the meantime, done two things. First, you remember, we got that out of the the book of Numbers, how he had chosen the Levites to take the place of the firstborn sons. And secondly, the Lord had arranged a way for the Israelites to buy back or to redeem their firstborn sons from him. And you even know the price. Leviticus 12 says it's a lamb if you're well off. If you're not so well off, then you pay a pair of doves or turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so perhaps now you can begin to see what it is that Joseph and Mary are doing in the temple. In the first place, they are consecrating their firstborn son to the Lord. They are acknowledging that actually this son who has been born to them in Bethlehem really and truly and completely belongs to God. He's not in the first place their possession. No, first and foremost, he's God's special possession. They're dedicating Jesus to the Lord. Now, on hearing that word dedication, some of you may be thinking, oh, but there are Christians who still do that today. Instead of baptizing their children, they dedicate their children and they see dedication as a substitute or a replacement for infant baptism. Interesting, beloved, but unfortunately the comparison doesn't hold much water. For look, the baby Jesus is both circumcised and dedicated. Luke 2 verse 21 tells us that on the eighth day he was circumcised. In other words, then God laid his claim on this covenant child and made sure that he received his covenantal sign and seal. Or in the words of the Belgic Confession, those beautiful words, God placed on his son his mark and his emblem. That's what he receives on the eighth day. And then 32 days later, something else happens to him. His parents dedicate him and consecrate him to the Lord. In other words, they do for him what every believing Israelite does for their firstborn son. They present him to God. And they acknowledge the Lord's unique claim upon his life. And that's not all they do. They also do something else. They buy him back from the Lord. Apparently, Joseph and Mary do not belong to the rich or the famous. And so instead of buying Jesus back with a lamb, they used either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And now... Jesus, who belongs to God, can also be said to belong to them. 
they may now rightfully lay claim to him as their son and as their heir. Yes, and throughout this whole procedure, Joseph and Mary show us something, don't they? They show us that they are indeed committed believers and serious parents. For they do not short-circuit the process or put themselves above the law of God because they know somehow through the angel that Jesus is special. And neither do they see themselves as a cut above the rest because God has picked them and thus think that perhaps God has exempted them from what normal Israelites are supposed to do. Now they remain humble servants. And they remind us that all good biblical parenting begins with listening closely to the Lord and following through on His will. But nevertheless, beloved, while good biblical parenting stands out here, something else should also catch our attention. And it has to do with everything that's here done to the Lord Jesus. First, He's circumcised. Second, He's dedicated. Third, He he needs to be bought back. And then we ask ourselves, why do all of these ordinary Jewish ceremonial laws, why are they all applied to him? After all, he's not ordinary at all. Why does he need to be circumcised when there is no sin in his life that needs to be cut off? Why does he need to be dedicated to God in the temple when God was obviously the one who sent him into the world? Why does he need to be bought back in that same temple when he has been sent in a manner of speaking to buy back all of God's people? You know, on one level, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And as a matter of fact, on a purely human level, it just looks like a lot of nonsense. But beloved, not on God's level. Not if you are in tune with God's program. For what is God doing here? He's doing what the Apostle Paul describes so beautifully in In Galatians chapter 4, he is sending his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Remember that Jesus came to save. He didn't come in the first place to be pampered to or catered to. No, he came fundamentally to work the redemption of his people, of you and I. And the only way to accomplish that redemption is for him to be born under the law. To be subject to the law all the days of his earthly life. 
to fulfill the law with a life of perfect and utterly spotless obedience. You see, Jesus being brought to the temple means that he's being brought under the law. And so what we're dealing with here is not just a case of two devout parents doing their good religious thing. No, it's much more about their son, their special son, who needs to be placed under the law so that the law can no longer condemn the people of God, so that all the children of God may enter into their full rights as sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. If he hadn't gone to the temple, if he hadn't been brought there, He couldn't have done that. Humanly speaking, your salvation and my salvation would not have been accomplished. But now it has. And how do we know that? How do we know that Christ was wonderfully and spectacularly successful? Well, for an answer, turn and look who comes into the temple. Who marches in? It's a man called Simeon. He's described as a righteous and devout man. And he's also said to be a man who spent his life waiting. I know there are some men here who think they spend their life waiting. I won't say on who. But this is a different kind of waiting. This is waiting for the consolation of Israel which means waiting for the subject people of God of that day to be delivered and set free to serve God. And finally, Simeon's also a recipient, you can notice, of special revelation or special revelation of the Holy Spirit, for it's been revealed to him that he's not going to die before he sees the Christ of the Lord. Well, now, one day, beloved, this man is told to get to the temple. He's told to get there on the 40th day. And he's told to get there as quickly as possible and as fast as his sandals can carry him. And he goes. Yes, and on arriving there, it is somehow revealed to him. Here, the temple, you know, the temple, as far as we know, was always filled with people. It's like a Chinese railroad station. People everywhere. Old people, young people, kids, parents, everywhere. But the Spirit showed Simeon the way and led him to the Christ. And on seeing him, what does Simeon do? It says he he prophesies, he he sings, he rejoices, he praises the Lord, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, Lord, if you want, you can now fire me or retire me. I don't care. Either way. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
A salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all the people. Now think for a moment. How can, how can Simeon say that? All he has is a baby in his arms. And if you're a male and you look at a baby, then you say to yourself, they all look the same to me. So what's so special about this baby? That he can be called salvation. And there's more. What's so special about this baby that he can be called a light for revelation, for unveiling to the Gentiles? And what's so special that he can be said to be for the glory of your people Israel? Salvation, revelation, glory. They're all attributed to this little, helpless baby. How can Simeon be so sure? There's only one answer, at least one answer that I can find in the Scriptures, and that is that it has to do with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who told him he wouldn't die too soon. The Spirit who drove him into the temple on that special day. The Spirit is the one who made him to see what no one else could see. Why, the Spirit even told him more. The Spirit told Simeon to tell Mary and Joseph that this particular baby innocent as he looks and small as he appears, is going to cause many in Israel to rise as well as to fall. And the Spirit even told Simeon, who impressed it upon Mary, don't be surprised what's going to happen. This child is going to bring a lot of laughter and joy into your life. But this child is also going to bring a lot of suffering and pain. A sword will pierce your own soul too. So what really is Simeon's role? Well, we can say that Simeon is a watcher on the walls of Zion. You may know that in ancient times the walls of cities were always manned. And especially in perilous times, men would be stationed on the walls to look for dangers and approaching enemies. And if they saw something suspicious approaching, they would sound the alarm. And then the city gates would shut and the walls would be manned with troops And the city would hopefully be in time to withstand the enemy. Well, now Simeon, too, is a watcher on the walls of Jerusalem. But notice, beloved, he's not watching out for the enemies of Jerusalem. He's watching for the Savior of Jerusalem. He's watching out for his coming. 
And he's assigned the task of announcing his coming. And that's what he did. He waited and he waited and he watched and he watched. And then one day, it all happened. It all fell into place. He saw God's very salvation personified. He held the light of revelation. He rejoiced in the glory, the coming glory of his people. And indeed you can say that Simeon confirmed that at last the Lord of the temple had come to the temple of the Lord. At last. For he saw so much more than others. He saw and he testified that this babe was none other than his Savior and our Savior. Beloved, the Spirit enabled Simeon to see him. And you know, without the Spirit, Simeon would have been blind. He would have been as blind as most of those people, scholars included, who commented on Jesus in the Christmas Eve issue of the Vancouver Sun. Did any of you read it? If you did, did you notice how the answers about Jesus are all over the map? And that most of them go from the ridiculous to the ludicrous? And most of them couldn't be any more wrong or more ignorant? And why is that? Because these people refuse to let themselves be guided and instructed by the Spirit. And especially by the Word of the Spirit. For how do we know who Jesus is? How come that we believe in Him and receive Him as Lord, as Savior, as Christ, as Son of God, as human and divine? Is it because we're smarter or brighter? No, it's because thanks to God's grace and mercy and thanks to the Spirit's work in our hearts, we still read the Word and we believe the Word. The Word of the Spirit conforms and confirms us in the Lord of the Spirit. Unlike Simeon, we are not the recipients of direct revelation. But we are the possessors of God's complete and written revelation. And therefore, beloved, keep on reading it. Keep on believing it. Keep on applying it. It will keep on revealing the Christ to you. And it will keep your life close to Him. 
And so, beloved, there is Simeon. There's also Anna. Who is Anna? Well, Luke writes that she is a prophetess, that she is from the tribe of Asher, that she is the daughter of a man called Phanuel, whoever he happened to be, that she's old, that she's a widow, that she's a a temple dweller, and that she's been there for years and decades, always worshiping, praising, fasting, praying. In short, Anna is a rather unusual character. She's sort of a a special fixture in the temple. I'm sure everyone knew her. Well, there goes Anna. (laughs) We all know Anna, right? Every time we come here, there's Anna. You just can't get around Anna. It's always Anna, no matter where you turn or where you go in this temple. She's always there. And everyone knew why she was there. She's looking. She's looking for the redemption and the Redeemer of Israel. And I don't know, but I suspect that a lot of these people thought she was probably a few screws loose. But there was Anna. And then one day, she saw him. On that 40th day, it wasn't just Simeon who saw him, but Anna as well. Simeon recognized him, held him, prophesied about him. Anna may or may not have held him, we're not told. But there's no doubt that she recognized him. And she praised God for him. Oh, one more thing. Anna promoted Promoted him. And you've got to catch this, beloved. Here she is, a little old lady. She's either 84 years old, or the text can also be written that she's been a widow for 84 years, believe it or not. You can read it both ways. And different translations do. So she's a little old lady. She's a widow. She belongs to the tribe of Asher, which nobody really remembers because they're long gone, part of the ten tribes, an obscure part of the ten tribes. She has no social standing, no political standing, hardly any legal standing. She's a nobody. But she is a prophetess. She knows the word of the Lord. And she proclaims and she testifies To that word, she spoke, it says, about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Think about it. Anna. Anna's really one of the first missionaries in the New Testament. You can say, first, there have been the shepherds. And they're an unlikely lot as well. But then there's Anna. And together they testify that what, to the fact that what missionaries need more than anything else are the eyes to see and the ears to hear and a mouth to speak. Oh, and something else, something even more basic. They need a heart. 
that's on fire. They need a heart that is on fire thanks to the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. They need a heart that's on fire because it knows Jesus. Beloved, that's what Anna needed. That's what the shepherds needed. That's what Simeon needed. And that's still what all of us as God's people need. We all need hearts aflame. We need hearts so heated up that they focus our eyes, that they tune our ears, and that they fill our mouths to bring praise to Jesus Christ. This is the last Sunday of 2007. And as you look back over the year gone by, let me ask you, has your heart been on fire? Has Christ Jesus been front and center in your life? Have you praised and promoted Him? Just what kind of a believer have you been? Cold, lukewarm, or hot? Not hot-headed, by the way, but hot-hearted. And also, what kind of a believer do you hope to be through the grace of God? When and if, and let's say if, the new year comes. Because that too is not guaranteed. Indeed, beloved, praise God for a simple soul like Anna. And indeed, praise God for all who promote Jesus Christ, the living Lord and the glorious Savior. And praise God, too, for the fact that now we have something else. And you may not have thought of it, but now we have the testimony of two witnesses. If you know your Bible, you know that the testimony in of one witness in Scripture is not really the basis for anything. But on the basis of the testimony of two witnesses, everything stands or falls. And together, Simeon and Anna testify to the fact that the Lord whom we seek has come to his temple. The Holy One of God has come to the holy place of God to begin the making of a holy people for God. The great rescue mission, in other words, has begun. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.